Good morning. How are you? How's your daily spiritual practice? Good. Good? All right. We need 100% answers on that. Huh? Okay. That's a, that's a spiritual practice. Okay. Uh, welcome to those of you who are watching online. I'm grateful for the technology that makes it possible for, do, for us to do this. And let's begin as we do in silence. So if it helps you to close your eyes, you can do that. Just get grounded and be here. Be open. And the prayer that we use is, may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and at our departing. I hope that you find what you came here looking for today and this time today and that all of us leave here more peacefully and better informed than when we arrived. You're going to love today's time. And... Uh, Next week, uh, I'm going to pick back up with where we were on talking about what's next after awareness, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from um, the Gospel of John. Uh, in one of you know, in John, Jesus gives all these long speeches, and in one of them, there are all these "I am" statements, and in one of those, he says, "In my Father's house are many mansions." Yeah. So, what is the relevant down-to-earth contemporary understanding of that particular phrase and that's we'll begin to go forward with trying to understand better the what I'm calling the Jesus perspective so no matter who you are no matter where you are in your spiritual journey you are welcome here so one of the lines that I've been using the past several weeks in my teaching has roots that go all the way back to you can find it in, you can certainly find it in the, the biblical materials, in the canonical materials. It really surfaces in the monastic movement with St. Benedictine, but then it gets developed over the centuries. And the person that I've been quoting saying uh, this is uh, Thomas Merton, who says that uh, there are two essential spiritual practices that we can ask over and over, and that is sacred mystery, who are you? and sacred mystery, who am I? And if you adopt that, to use that as your ongoing spiritual practice, in the way that I tried to elaborate on last week, I think that you will find it to be very helpful. Um, one of the tools that spiritual directors use to help people gain a better understanding of who they are is a tool called the Enneagram. And uh, the Enneagram is a system of personality typing that describes patterns about how people interact with the world and how we interact in our relationships. Those of you who have siblings, those of you who have children, those of you who are or have been ever married know that no two people share the same personality. And two people with the same personality don't marry each other. Or if they do, they don't stay married. <laughs> they commit murder or something. Maybe sixes marry each other. I don't, I'm not sure about that. Um, the, the Enneagram has been incredibly helpful to me. And um, the last weekend in September coming up, we're having one of the English-speaking world's leading and most popular teachers about the Enneagram, Suzanne Stabile. Uh, I have attended a workshop with her on the Enneagram. I can tell you she is fantastic. She is funny. 
She is very informative. A couple of years ago when Jeff McDonald and I were talking about getting speakers to come, he, uh, one of the people he said, see if you could get is this person. So we have finally arranged that she's gonna be here the last weekend in September. And when Jeff found that out this week when it was a definite thing that we um, uh, got her, he said, I want you to go back to her and see if you can negotiate either that she come a day early or stay a day late and work with the staff. That's how much she can uh, be of benefit to people. So um, I'm giving you this information so that you can mark it on your calendar and also so that um, you can begin your own work to prepare for this. Uh, some of you have heard of the Enneagram. Some of you have not. There is on the Ordinary Life website under resources a piece that I put from Sandra Matry's book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram. And you can go on the website and read that. It's called The Inner, uh, I think, The Inner Fall or something like that. Uh, if you do, oh, this is going out to a lot of people. I didn't get copyright permission to put that on the uh, website. <laughs> so if I'm in jail this time next week, that you'll know why. But there is, a, there is that PDF of an article, a, a chapter from that book that is incredibly helpful. Nobody can tell you what your Enneagram number is. You have to figure that out for yourself. And uh, we are negotiating with Suzanne Sibyl about what programs she might do. And um, I think we're going to decide that she's not going to help us figure out our number. Because that takes a while. But help us with relationships, the thing. So um, I had somebody tell me my Enneagram number a long time ago. That was a huge mistake. I lived with a mistaken identity for a couple of years. <laughs> Seriously. I didn't want to do the Enneagram. Uh, Richard Rohr asked me to, and I said I would. But I was very passive aggressive. I didn't need that. I knew... I had a psychology degree and all that stuff. I didn't need that stuff. But he finally was insistent, so I bought his book, and I didn't take to it. So I, we had at that time somebody at St. Paul's come to St. Paul's and do Enneagram training, and I was not able to attend those meetings, so I hired her to get her to work with me, and I'm so frustrating to work with as a student that finally she just threw up her hands and said, you're a five. <laughs> So um, when I hired, a, when I got engaged with the current spiritual director I have and have had for a number of years, she asked me if I knew my Enneagram number, and I said, oh, sure, I'm an expert in the Enneagram. And um, she said, what are you? And, and I said, I'm a five. And she said, hmm, reached behind her and got this book off the shelf and handed it to me and said, take this book home and... Um, read it and come back next month and tell me what you think. So this book, The Enneagram Made Easy, is a book that looks like it's dumbed down. It isn't. You can give it to your adolescent children and they can read and profit from it. So I took it home and I read it and I went back to see Sister Lois and I said, you know, I don't think I'm a five. I'm a seven. She said, I think you are too. And I ought to know. I'm an expert in the Enneagram. She teaches the Enneagram, and she was really upset when I told her that somebody had told me my number. She said, what number do you think you are? And I said, I'm a seven. And she said, I think so, too. And I said, why do you think that? And she said, because you're too much of a smart ass and a narcissist to be a five. <laughs> you need a spiritual director who will be straight with you. And that's that, so. So I'm encouraging you to uh, get this book. You can get it off of Kindle uh, or your e-reader. You can have it sent to you. It's really easy to read and, and to start to live with it and work with it because Suzanne Stabil is going to come, and she's dynamite. And uh, So mark that on, on your calendar. Um, I think it would be really, really helpful to you. So that's all I'm going to say about this now or about next Sunday. Uh, Dr. Dawson Taylor is someone I knew about long before I knew him. I knew Dawson through his mother and father, father and mother, Bill Taylor and Roxanne Taylor. Um, and I found out after I met them that uh, 
your mother's brother is a member of this congregation, Ted Smith, who is along, right back there, who's a long Methodist clergy, longtime chaplain, and tends church here. So as you all know, the Methodist church has been significantly affected by almost 2,000 Methodist churches disaffiliating from the United Methodist Church to form their own denomination. Um, and when Dr. Jim Bankson was here talking to us about this some time ago, he said the new denomination is going to be called the GMC, the Global Methodist Church. And Jim said he was never a GMC person, he was always a Ford guy. So, so taking their lead from what's going on in places like Florida, there are at least 15 states that are considering bans, legislation that bans certain, certain instructions about sexual orientation and gender identity in schools. Um, as you will see right now, Dawson is uniquely qualified to speak to this. He has a ton of credentials. One, uh, one time he was the executive minister of Hope United Method, uh, Church of Christ in Dallas, which is the largest LBGTQ plus congregation in the world. He has a doctorate from Chicago Theological Seminary, where he's a trustee there, and he is going to be our speaker right now. Dawson, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Turn your mic. Good morning. It is such a privilege to be here. Um, I have always been a fan of Ordinary Life because I am a Bill Curley fan but also because my father spoke here many years ago, which I'll uh, allude to uh, in a few minutes. Um, but I didn't know I was quite the fan that I was until being here today to understand that you have happy hours each month. And so that, that was actually one of the things I noticed in the United Church of Christ when I left the United Methodist Church was we could have happy hours and put in the bulletin and nobody cared. It was great, uh, is great. But I'm also, uh, you'll appreciate uh, some of you in this room, uh, I'm an Enneagram 3, and I'm 44 years old. I am your worst nightmare. I have a doctorate and live with my parents. Uh, once again, I know, trust me, they feel the same. Um, <laughs> More than that, my Labrador and I live with my parents. So I, uh, I recently uh, was living in Florida and served as senior minister of Naples United Church of Christ. Um, decided that my time there was complete. And so I moved back to my native Houston and um, am currently uh, in the job hunting season, which in the United Church of Christ uh, involves search committees. So I'd like to welcome all search committees that are watching this morning to see <laughs> what I say, and also those who have joined us online. I'm also a fan of uh, St. Paul's United Methodist Church for many reasons. One, because for as long as I can remember, Jim and Sandy Bankston have been a part of my extended family. I have pictures and memories of, of being with Jim and Sandy, and, um, and so I'm grateful to, to them for their love of me and of our family's love for each other. And um, Dr. Jeff McDonald has become a close friend and confidant uh, in this interim season of my life, and so I'm deeply grateful for Jeff, his entire staff team, and uh, the opportunity to worship here from time to time. But my greatest memory of St. Paul's is having um, co-officiated my sister and brother-in-law's wedding here, and in the beautiful St. Paul's sanctuary, watching my baby sister walk up the aisle as the organ swelled, Tears filled my eyes, and my brother, who co-officiated with me, leaned over and said, I don't know if I can make it through this. <laughs> and, uh, and so the majesty of this congregation is not lost on me at all. So as uh, Bill mentioned, um, I wanted to speak this morning first about uh, the official split of the United Methodist Church. And... Um, you're gonna hear a lot of facts and figures on the front end of this. I apologize that I didn't uh, prepare slides, but um, I want you to know that you can find the report that I'm referencing at churchleadership.com. 
It is um, the Lewis Center for Church Studies at Wesley Theological Seminary. And they've just published three weeks ago an in-depth study of churches and the characteristics of United Methodist churches that have stayed United Methodist and then those who have left. Uh, many, as Bill mentioned, have chosen to join the Global Methodist Church, um, but several are remaining independent, which also is a fascinating uh, in, uh, thing that's happening in the midst of all of this. And then the second half, what I'd like to do is propose three ideas of what it means uh, socially and theologically to be progressive Christians in this era and in this time. Because again, I think it's a fascinating uh, time that we're experiencing. A little more background about me is that I am a cradle United Methodist. Uh, my father, my aunt, my uncle who's here this morning are all retired United Methodist clergy. I was born, baptized, and confirmed in the United Methodist Church. And this is the first time I've ever said this publicly, I believe I would be uh, serving as an elder in the United Methodist Church today if it were not on the ban of self-avowed and practicing homosexual persons. One of the things I find interesting about that statement in the Book of Discipline is that it first appeared in the Book of Discipline in 1972. That's how long that ban has been in place. Interestingly, my newfound denominational home, I say new, I was ordained in the United Church of Christ in 2006, in 1972, the United Church of Christ ordained its first openly gay clergy person. And so the dichotomy uh, and the tension between that has always been interesting uh, in my life and in my ministry. But I take no delight and it grieves me greatly to see what is happening to the United Methodist Church today. As of the end of 2021, and there have actually been more since then, there were just a little more than 2,000 churches that have disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church. So this is where we're gonna get into a lot of the facts and figures. And, um, and then I, I have uh, set some time aside for at the end, uh, discussion, questions, uh, pushback, uh, whatever uh, delights you. So, this is the second time that the United Methodist Church has split. The first time was in 1844 over the issue of slavery. And um, a bishop was elected in Georgia who owned slaves. And he was um, censored by the General Conference, and that caused a church split. And so I think while 2024 will be the year that the General Conference formally acknowledges this split, these, this process has been in place now for uh, many years, several years. Um, I think 2024 will mark the second split of the United Methodist Church. And I'm aware of a uh, senior minister of a prominent Methodist church here in the city who has uh, gone on record with his congregation to say that this is not about homosexuality. Let me be very clear. The church split is solely about homosexuality, which of course has lots of uh, things attached to that. But the first split in 1844, slavery, 2024, homosexuality. One of the things um, in 2004, I was a delegate to the General Conference, the youngest delegate in Texas conference history. A fascinating thing happened during one of the worship experiences. There was uh, a a worship service seeking the forgiveness of First Americans for what had been done to uh, that community by and in the name of the church. My aunt was a clergy delegate that same year and so we sat next to each other. I was not publicly out, but I was out to family and friends. And I leaned over and I said, you know, the day will come when they apologize to us too. And I believe that will happen. When, I don't know, but I do believe the church will have a lot to apologize for. So the report that I want to share with you and, and draw to your attention, um, as I mentioned, is, can be found on churchleadership.com. It's entitled, Report on Disaffiliating United Methodist Churches Through 2022. It was authored by uh, Lovett Weems, who is the retired president of Wesley Theological, 
and is now a senior consultant with the Lewis Center, uh, doing much on church and church vitality. Here is the executive summary of the things that he found and discovered in, uh, in his overview. Disaffiliating churches are less likely to have an active elder as pastor. Disaffiliating churches are more likely to have a male pastor. Disaffiliating churches are overwhelmingly majority white in their membership. Disaffiliating churches are, this is going to shock you, I'm glad you're seated, are overwhelmingly in the South. And disaffiliating churches are in less populated areas of the country. So let's take a look at clergy status. Compared to all United Methodist churches, the churches who have, who have pastors that are, uh, excuse me, disaffiliating churches that have pastors are less likely to be an active elder and more likely to be a part-time local pastor. 37% of disaffiliating churches were served by an active elder for, versus 43%, which actually, uh, I was sharing this with my dad, he and I were surprised that that number is as low as it is, that uh, United Methodist churches, only 43% are served by an elder. The gender of clergy, compared to all Methodist churches, the disaffiliating pastors are more likely to be male Set only 17% of the congregations that disaffiliated have female um, lead pastors. Um, interestingly en enough, the United Methodist Church as a whole um, are led by 29% uh, female clergy. Um, and so, again, male pastors. Um, age of the pastor tended to be for disaffiliating churches. Pastors actually were about the same age as disaffiliating and those who have stayed. Um, interestingly, that also uh, there was uh, a group of pastors leading the churches out uh, is a, a group of retired pastors. And so they did see some bump there. When we look at race and ethnicity, compared to all United Methodist churches, those who disaffiliated are overwhelmingly white. 97.3 of those churches that disaffiliated have a majority white membership. Just for my own curiosity, um, that leaves 89.6 of United Methodist churches are majority white. Um, I'm not sure there's anything too surprising about that. I actually expected it to be a little lower, um, but again, 97.3% majority white of those who left. When you look at congregational size, they're actually, when it all evens out, they're about the same size churches, those who have stayed, versus those who have left. We've seen several, or I would say a few significant sized congregations in Texas, um, or in the Texas Annual Conference, predominantly in the Houston area, um, who have left, but it's been mostly smaller congregations um, outside, again, of, of mainstream areas. This is what I, one of the things I found most interesting about this report is looking at the growth and the decline of those churches. So compared to all United Methodist churches, disaffiliating churches are most likely, more likely, to have grown in attendance over the past year, although they are less likely to have received a proportionate number of professions of faith and deaths within the congregation. So they have, they are, have higher attendance and they are growing but they have fewer professions of faith and uh, more deaths within the congregation. More disaffiliating churches grew in attendance in 2019 than the year before. 31% of disaffiliating churches grew the year before they disaffiliated. Only 27% of United Methodist churches have grown in that same period. So there's a whole nother time to be talked about with churches in decline and why that is, but only 27% of United Methodist churches have grown. At the same time, United Methodist churches had proportionally more professions of faith. So they're not growing as, as rapidly, but there are more professions of faith, meaning a first time commitment to Jesus Christ or a public profession of that faith. 
And so you see uh, there is dy dynamic ministry happening in United Methodist churches, but I was fascinated by this um, growth. Um, and you might also be know, uh, interested to know while studying this and looking at this, the deaths exceeded the professions of faith for all United Methodist churches by 6%. And so in 2019, that was the first year in the United Methodist history that there were more deaths than professions of faith. It's a, a challenging time to be in mainline churches and clergy today. So please love on your amazing clergy team here. The regions, again, I don't think you'll be shocked by any of this, but compared to all United Methodist churches, the disaffiliating churches are disproportionately in the South. The South Central and Southeastern jurisdictions comprise 52% of those departures. Now, when you think of uh, South and Southeast, basically think Texas to Florida, and then you go up to Nebraska and then kind of down uh, through Georgia, uh, Alabama, and Mississippi. And so you basically have that block of uh, the nation. Uh, you may recognize some of those states as the last to end segregation, the first to fight marriage equality, um, et cetera. And so you see some trends in the areas in which there has been the split. In the Texas Annual Conference, where we rest, that's uh, uh, the uh, Methodist office, the central building, as it's called, is literally two blocks this way. Um, the, this conference has actually had uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, um, impact, where 49%, or 296 congregations, um, at the end of 2021 have disaffiliated. It's anticipated that there will be a few more, but the vast majority of that happened um, during the end of the last quarter of 2021. So there has been significant impact, excuse me, last of 2022. There's been significant impact um, in Texas specifically and in the number of churches. Some of you who know my family and know that my father served as district superintendent uh, in the East Texas area, you can now leave Texarkana and make it almost to Huntsville without a, a main line United Methodist Church in your path. And that was never the case. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that, but in general terms, um, that's how, how much it has impacted that part of uh, Texas. And so it has had a significant impact on uh, those called United Methodist here in Texas and especially in the South. Now what's interesting about all of that, if you're a church nerd, you love all that stuff, um, but what the report didn't go into, and, and Dr. Weems may be working on this, but what the report did not go into is what is the theology behind the churches that are leaving, but more importantly, what, is, what does it mean to be a progressive Christian? First, I want to say, I meant, I meant to say earlier, but I want to say how much as an openly gay man, the fact that this group is reconciling and has made that public statement, how meaningful that is. And I want to commend you and encourage that you continue in that. So I have three ideas that I want to offer of what it means to be a progressive Christian in the climate in which we live. The first is to be a progressive Christian today, we must know that the foundational understanding of our faith is that we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. We do not believe in understanding of scripture that excludes people, excludes other faiths, demonizes those without faith, or seeks to push people to the margins. Lest we forget that scripture has been used for the enslavement of people, the oppression of women, the murder of transgender persons, especially those of color who identify as female, and the justification of governmental control over the autonomy of one's body. 
To be a progressive Christian is to see Scripture as life-giving and life-affirming, recognizing the sanctity of all people regardless of the societal pressures to define some as worthy of God's love and some not. Scripture is intended to guide our journey and to guide our path, but it is not literal nor the only source of enlightened faith. There are great scholars both of the Christian tradition and those outside of Christianity who offer deep insights to God and how we approach the love of Jesus Christ. So as progressive Christians, may we never check our brains at the door and blindly follow anyone. Secondly, to be a progressive Christian today, I believe we must be people of radical celebration. I've reached a place in my life, particularly as a gay man, that I am no longer interested in churches that are, quote, welcoming. And I certainly am not interested in churches that tolerate. I want to be a part of a church that celebrates. To be celebrated is to have the, deep, the divine that is deep within us all called out and claimed. You see, when people are celebrated by their communities for who God has created them to be, it allows all of us to feel safe and to be whole. It empowers the person who aborted a fetus to know that they are loved and treasured, despite what many politicians and pastors claim. When we all feel safe, it empowers the person battling addiction to name who they've hurt and to make amends. When we all feel safe, it empowers the young transgender person to claim faithfully their true gender identity without threat of retribution or harm. When we all feel safe, it empowers the drag queen to be the fabulous entertainer that they are without laws attempting to end their livelihood. Because, as a side note, if we're honest, drag queen bans like the one that goes into effect in Tennessee on April 1st and is currently being debated in the Texas legislature aren't really about drag queens. It's an attempt by the conservative right to legislate LGBTQ persons out of existence. And after women's bodies and drag queens, who's next? We must radically celebrate each of us with our faults and our foibles, knowing and wishing that God had placed us on earth to judge, but God didn't that it's actually we've been placed here to love. Lastly, to be a progressive Christian today, I believe we must be political, but not partisan. We are living in an era in our nation where those who have been deemed less than are now actively under legislative attack. As a former board member of Planned Parenthood, I see the post-Roe world that my nieces, nephews, and godchildren will have to navigate, and it makes me wonder what more I could have done. As someone who has worked for the safety of all students in a conservative school district and been attacked in the media for it, I fear what young people must endure especially those who feel different, and currently, especially those who live in Florida. Churches must be places where all people are celebrated and respected, heard, but I believe it's progressive Christians who must be the ones who lead Christ's call to action from the pews into the streets. I'm not overly concerned about who it is that you vote for, but I do care when our politicians and elected officials, once in office, begin to dream up the kind of legislation that we see being passed in state houses across our nation. 
The religious right for too long has had too much to say about the direction of our country. I believe the time is now for progressive Christians to say with one voice, not in our schools, not in our city, not in our state, not in our country, and not on our watch. We must demand policies that generate values like affordable housing, equality among all people, childcare availability for all, autonomy over our own bodies. These are not at their core partisan or really even political issues. These are progressive Christian issues rooted in scripture. So I hope I've given you some things to think about, to, to talk about, and I hope I don't have to have an armed escort out. But I am deeply and profoundly grateful for this opportunity. As I said to Bill earlier this week, I also prefer dialogue rather than monologue. And so um, I know that I think we're prepared for either questions, comments, as I said, feedback, pushback. I've been a pastor, I'm used to that. Um, and so uh, I just wanna open up and see what others might think, add, what did I leave out? I think, we've, I think, we, I think we have a mic coming to you. Oh, excuse, okay, sorry, excuse me, I lied. You noted or mentioned who's next yeah. after uh, gay people and women's bodies. Right. I think it's already begun and has, uh, in some state legislatures, certainly our federal, the old people, because we mm. use up social security funds. Yeah. So we use up money and we're not producing, so, so they say. And uh, it's in the works right now. Yeah, I think ageism is an important uh, issue that we also must take up. Thank you for raising that. I appreciate that. And I agree, I think it's also already underway. Other thoughts? Yes? Well, a few months ago, I went by the old Christian Science Church. Uh huh. So if, make sure I re repeat the question back uh, in the spirit that it's asked, uh, that uh, there's a, a, a Right for Life group that moved into a, a building here in Montrose, and, the, and your perception was that it's a lot of young families uh, that are welcoming, and what do I make of that? Is that, okay. So what's interesting about that is uh, that doesn't fall in line with the demographics of what we know about those who are pro-choice that it, it does skew, uh, the pro-choice uh, movement currently skews younger, um, uh, my, I don't remember anything about family status, but my sense of that is if, in, if I were in your shoes and driving by, I would see some of that as window dressing for a cause, and both sides do that, so let's be clear and honest about that. Um, but I don't, uh, it's, that strikes me as not my experience with uh, those who are, are pro-life. Um, we had in Florida, um, there were protests literally every day out in, outside any of our health clinics. And it was typically not young families that were there holding signs and yelling at our care providers. So that's, that's not been my experience, but I, I have seen that. But in the, in the whole, that's not, on the whole, that's not my experience. Oh, Mike, Mike is coming to you. Just one second. I am proud that you are here. Thank you, Don. Because I've been a member of St. Paul's, and I've had a Don and God moment when River Bankston spoke for the breaking of silence. He said, if you have any problems with your minister uh, or your family about your lifestyle, talk to your pastor. He was my pastor. That's all I heard. The rest of his speech, I cried happy tears because God's speaking to me that it's okay to be gay, Don, and at St. Paul's. Yeah. And I'm glad you're here to 
help me understand what's happening with the split of the Christian, uh, the Methodist Church. Yeah. Very happy that you're here. It's helping me to understand what's going on. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's good to be here. <laughs> Others. Oh, here we go. Hi, I Hi. consider myself an ally. Yes. And so I was just wondering if you've got any more specific advice, like, you know, to go beyond being welcoming right. to affirming. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the, the question was, uh, well, you've heard it with the microphone. Um, with uh, being an ally, I first of all, thank you. Um, and secondly, it's really interesting how uh, this is an older statistic. It probably needs updating. I need to find it. At one point earlier in my ministry, uh, it was approximate. It was believed that approximately 10% of all LGBTQ persons are out in all aspects of their lives: work, family, faith, community. So that's that leaves 90% uh, of people who are still closeted at some aspect. And it's interesting how sometimes the little things that you can do as an ally, for instance, asking questions like, I'm eager to meet the person you're dating or your spouse, um, and even some of our language. For instance, you know, I use spouse language instead of husband and wife specifically. Some of that has to do with uh, gender identity, but some of that has to do with what our mainstream language often, uh, the messages that it sends. And so I think that some of those more quiet, subtle things are, are actually can be much more meaningful because um, I, when I was first uh, on staff of a Methodist church before going to seminary, um, I was dating someone, but I had to make up stories or change their identity, their gender in stories because I couldn't be, I didn't feel that I could be authentic. I learned later that I could, but I, I didn't feel I could be authentic. So the idea of creating spaces where people can be authentic it sounds, it perhaps sounds simple, but to me, it's it's deeply meaningful, and it and, and it helps people, especially young people. So thank you, Dawson. I have a I have a yes, question. Bill. Um, currently, on the books in the United Methodist Church, there's no change. So what what can yeah. we look forward to about there being a declared openness about having uh, gay clergy about the um, permissibility of performing same-sex yeah. unions, that sort of thing. Yeah, so that's an important part, thank you, Bill, that I left out uh, there didn't speak to. From what I understand, um, that there will obviously be legislation that comes before the General Conference in 2024. Um, so basically a year from now, it usually meets in late April, early May. Um, that there will be legislation that comes forward to change all the things that you've mentioned, the ban on, uh, on marriage equality, the ban on uh, ordination of gay and lesbian people. Um, I have friends, um, particularly those who work so hard in the reconciling movement who believe that is the time for change. I have had, I have close friends um, who are leading in, in, in significant leadership in the church who have said, don't anticipate that change in 24. It's gonna take longer for things to work out. So I would say, I, I, my imagination is that within a year of, you know, from now, that the church will be ready for that. Um, but as often things like this happen, it is about those who are elected to the general conference. Um, and so places like Texas um, and others, who they send to the general conference will deem that path and, and what that looks like. So I was surprised to hear someone and, and others say, don't expect a change in 24, but I, I do know that hope abounds and that there are those working very hard for that change. I think there was a, oh, sorry, yes. Mike, is it working? Yes, it's working. Yes. <laughs> I'm Leslie Kaufman, and you know I was thinking about some of the things that you were talking about, and that we can do to um, get other people to understand about the LGBTQIA uh, community. And I have a trans grandson, and I wear the St. Paul's shirt every now and then with the, rain the, the rainbow, and then I wear rainbow pins. And it's interesting 
most of my friends are old, obviously, because I'm old. Um, but people will come up and ask me. So I do it quietly, and then we have conversations. And I think that's really the key with changing people's minds. And I play Mahjong once a week, so the group asked me one time, oh, they started, this one woman who's much more conservative than I am, because I'm way left, um, said, she said, well, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna handle these pronouns with these trans people? I said, well, you know, I have a trans grandson. She kind of got quiet. And I said, uh, but it's like the English language is constantly changing. So, you know, 10 years ago, you think of what the language that has come through with the internet and computers and stuff that we didn't have. I said, we'll figure it out. And she said, oh, I never thought of it that way. But I want to do more than that, you know? So if you have some ideas for bigger ideas, I would be, oh, and then I talked to my grandchildren about this too, yeah. you know, I have eight of them, so oh, wow. they know, Bailey was telling me, she's 15, that she was a Republican, so I thought, oh, I have a problem with this, I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to deal with this, and so I wrote up a list of pros and cons, like a Ben Franklin, um, for people who are more inclusive, and those who are not, and then the laws and what we're trying to accomplish and I gave it to her I said now you read this and I want you to think about it so the next day she came and she said well I guess I'm really not a Republican <laughs> thank you thank you uh, if you have so, some ideas that we can do that bigger yeah. things well I just want to say I want to affirm the use of uh, gender pronouns there are those uh, in leadership in our nation who want to attack that but it is amazing, it's part of what I was speaking about earlier, it is amazing how safe that makes people feel. And I typically try to, I'm trying to get into the practice of doing it, and so I realized I didn't do that. I'm, my pronouns are he, him. And, but there was an interesting thing last week at the Oscars, if you watched, when Jamie Lee Curtis uh, won for, I believe it was Best Supporting Actress, um, she used they, them pronouns in accepting her award in honor of her transgender child. And so I think when people are public and uh, willing to engage those conversations about it's really not scary to ask someone, one of the best lessons I've learned is from my transgender friends is that it's really okay to say, I'm not sure how you like to be uh, referred. Can you share your pronouns with me? And again, making that a safe place for all people, because then that empowers others to talk about their transgender grandchildren, their friend. You know, it creates a, a safe place for uh, dialogue. I'm seeing a subtle hint here that I, I may be approaching my time. Um, I just want to say one other thing about that in the sense that I served my congregation in Naples. I'll never forget the woman who sat in my office one day, like you, plays Mahjong, was a member of a country club, blah, blah, blah. And she said, the only place I can talk about my trans grandchild is at church. And I told her, I said, you've given me the greatest gift you can ever imagine because we want to create safe places. And it's not always, it's not always about the person themselves. It's about their family, their allies, and their friends. Again, thank you for the great wait, privilege. Wait, oh, excuse me. Okay. Not I'm not you're, getting off the, okay. You're, you're not done. You're not done. Um, uh, you know, Dawson, because you have personal history here, St. Paul's is a bubble. Yes. This is this is. is a bubble. The, the people who come here are not aware of the kind of heartbreak and conflict that's going on in the Methodist Church broadly because we're not going to take a vote. We This church is on a path and has decided. But there are congregations out there, and I know because there are people watching on live stream right now where congregations are split right down the middle mm -hmm. about this issue. It's heartbreaking. It and what do you have a word to say? You're in a, a congregation in a relatively rural area, and you know they vote just barely to exit. Yeah. What's the counsel for those who vote to stay? So I think the the most exciting thing that's come of this in the Texas conference are new communities of faith that are being started. 
There's one that I'm aware of, I've not visited yet, but is called uh, Water's Edge in Conroe, Texas. Some of you who know my family story know that Conroe is a special place. Yeah. And, um, but First United Methodist Church left, that's the, a, a very large congregation left, and Water's Edge was started and uh, my dad and I and some others were looking to see who the pastor was. It was started by a layperson who said, we need a Methodist presence in this community and I'm going to do it. And now they're meeting, I think it's every other week um, at, a, at an Episcopal church in the evenings. And so I think for those who are um, facing that and have faced that, that there are ways to connect online, but there are also um, one of the other churches that has started, I think it's called Church of the Pines in Jasper, Texas. Because in that county, there are now no more uh, United Methodist congregations. And so uh, Jerry Neff, who's a dear family friend, has come out of retirement and is uh, leading this congregation. So there are these amazing communities blossoming all throughout Texas and all areas of Texas. And I think that's one of the most exciting things that's happening. It gives me great hope. I have a prediction that in two or three years, the churches, particularly smaller ones and clergy that have voted to exit, are gonna really regret their decision. I spoke to someone recently about that and said, I believe that one of the greatest challenges that will face the church in the future will be how to welcome back those who left in this time. Can we celebrate them? We can. It's <laughs> a little harder for some of us at you know, times. One of, the, one of the things that I got from listening to you today is I'm gonna change a line that I have used for years in here about no matter who you are, where you are in your mm -hmm. spiritual journey, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. Take that word welcome out and yeah. put in the word celebrate. celebrate. Appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you. We celebrate you. Well, thank you so, so much be for being here. And thank you all. And I hope you come back next week. See you here in Ordinary Life. Bye-bye. <laughs>